Welcome to Caring on the Go, your exclusive access to the latest news and commentary from the current issue of Caring for the Ages, the official newspaper of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the positions of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host of Caring on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Hello, and welcome to Caring on the Go for our first issue of 2024, and we're wishing all our listeners a healthy and joy-filled year ahead. In this January-February issue, we've got some mouthwatering content to discuss. I'm your host, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Carrying on the Go, a member of the AMDA on the Go podcast series, spotlights articles and stories from Caring for the Ages, the news magazine from AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. With every new issue, we feature Caring for the Ages Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gallick, to discuss some key articles, in this episode highlighting our January-February issue of Caring. And today, we're also honored and delighted to welcome our new Associate Editor, Dr. Gerald Winokur, to discuss his Meditations on Geriatric Medicine column that appears in this issue. Dr. Gallick is a nurse practitioner in long-term care and community-based settings through a clinical practice within the Shepherd Pratt Health System. She's a professor at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, where she teaches in the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Program. Beth also conducts research to improve care practices for older adults with dementia and their caregivers in long-term care. Gerald Winokur, MD, practiced internal and geriatric medicine for 36 years. He was the founding medical director of the first hospital-based skilled nursing unit in San Antonio, Texas. For 18 years, Jerry mentored and taught medical students at the Center for Medical Humanities and Ethics at University of Texas Health, San, San Antonio, as a clinical professor in medicine, where he used narrative medicine principles in his popular course, Medicine Through Literature. Jerry's books include Memory Lessons, A Doctor's Story, and a volume of poetry that I'm extremely fond of called Human Voices Wake Us. Beth, Jerry, welcome to Caring on the Go. Thanks, Thanks. Carl. Yeah, it's an honor. Well, we hope to have you back a few more times uh, now that you're you're official and everything. So uh, anyway, we're going to kick off today's session talking about the lead article from page one of the November-December sorry, the January-February issue of Caring, by our senior reporter, Joanne Caldi, entitled Bon Appetit, A Delicious Way to Inspire Chefs and Show the Best of Senior Living. So this piece, as you might imagine, is about a culinary contest highlighting chefs from, I think, continuing care retirement communities, and it really seems like a fun idea. Uh, you know, nursing homes in particular have a not entirely undeserved reputation as having bad, bland food, uh, and it's refreshing to see people wanting to break out of that stereotype. Uh, so, Beth, what were your key points for our listeners from this article, and what issues does it bring up? So, I was so pleased to be able to offer this article on the front page, mostly to get the new year off to a to a good start in hearing something positive that's going on in post-acute and long-term care. Um, 
And just so you know, the contestants, the chefs that entered and the food items, they were predominantly from continuing care retirement communities and um, assisted living facilities. Although some of them were ones that specialized um, in the care of individuals living with dementia. Uh, but the a couple of the major points for me was I really enjoyed this because it highlighted engagement of both staff and residents in something they could really celebrate together. Second, it gave recognition to the dining department. That is such an important department, but is often overlooked in any post-acute long-term care setting. It also, um, by having sometimes uh, our younger employees um, who get engaged in dining service positions earlier in their lives, it gives them exposure to post-acute and long-term care and aging care. And in some instances, it leads to some clinical positions or an interest in the field of aging. And then lastly, in addition to obviously the physical nourishment, we know that um, sharing meal times really is an important part of people's lives um, in post-acute and long-term care. It helps with socialization between staff and, pe and peers, and then um, helps to promote other factors um, related to quality of life. Um, two cute, fun stories, and kind of, I guess, why this interests me a bit is um, there was a facility that I used to work with that was memory care, and they were always trying out kind of new and creative ways to get um, residents to eat because they had difficulty with utensils. And everybody loves soups and the chefs were always trying out new soups and they would put them in coffee mugs so they could be sipped. And um, they would have family tasting sessions. They'd give everybody little teeny Dixie cups with some of the soup in it to try it. And it was a nice way to bring residents and families and staff all together. Um, yeah. Another fun little story was uh, when I first started my post-acute and long-term care career, the very first resident I worked with, because it was in a new building, wouldn't eat. And we figured out he wouldn't eat because nobody was with him. So the staff ate lunch and all his meals with him, and, and then he started doing better. So meals are such an important part of uh, our time in post-acute and long-term care, and I thought this just was a, a nice little positive story. Yeah, it really is. And I've certainly seen that too. And people uh, just eat a whole lot better when they're in a, in a social setting. It's, you know, you're sitting there and the food's in front of you. And it's a lot different from being, let's say, in your bed, in your room. And I think we saw so many of those kind of failure to thrive uh, situations during the pandemic when people were not allowed to have uh, communal dining. So, you know, many of these CCRCs cater to a kind of a wealthier population. Uh, who can afford to buy in or, or pay a lot more per month than the mostly Medicaid-covered nursing home population. So I'm thinking it's likely they have a more generous food budget than an average SNF, where I don't think $5 per resident per day is that unusual. And yet, I mean, throughout my years working in this setting, I've been pleasantly surprised at how palatable, palatable some of the chefs can make the food and how creatively these food services departments can help residents enhance the flavor uh, or textures of the food. And and as you said, Beth, nutrition is so important to our frail elders. And when they start losing weight and so on, that's usually a, a not a good sign. So, all right, let's move on. The next article is going to be your caring collaborative column, Beth, from page two of this issue, titled 
decreasing stigma and forming collaborative partnerships with family caregivers in long-term care. Great article and super important content, I think, for our listeners who care for both institutionalized older adults and, at least indirectly, their families and caregivers. I think we've all seen the types of unfortunate situations that can happen uh, over a family member's guilt in making what's often an agonizing decision to place their loved one in a long-term care setting. Uh, And when I'm making presentations, I'll often advise uh, attendees, never make your kids promise you they'll never put you in a nursing home, right? I mean, that's a, it's a really toxic promise to extract and it's just not always feasible in today's world. And uh, I see a lot of nursing home negligence lawsuits that in my opinion, stem at least in part from guilt over having to place, uh, you know, the parent or the spouse or whatever. So, so Beth, great job on this piece. And can you say a little more about stigma for caregivers? Uh, what else you learned in researching and writing this column and what are your recommendations are for our listeners? Sure. So just as a little intro, I, I talked about um, uh, our former First Lady, Rosalind Carter, and former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who both um, passed away um, a few months ago, um, fairly recently. And they were both um, really champions of family caregivers. Uh, and I mentioned a bit in the article, I, I went into Sandra Day O'Connor's uh, uh, library. It's all digitized. And she w- spoke very openly about admitting her husband to um, a, a post-acute and long-term care facility, an assisted living facility to start. And um, I thought that was kind of refreshing because it's something that we often don't see. So some of the things that I learned, um, both with some personal experience um, just in my work as well as uh, my role as a caregiver for my mother um, and from the literature is you have to prepare and educate staff to really anticipate and support families and, and caregivers for that range of emotions that they'll experience because stress and grief often unfortunately get expressed as anger and blame. And working with staff so that they're not taking all of that too personally and really seeing it as a bit of a a cry for reassurance and help. And listening to family caregivers' concerns in the beginning, I'm sure there'll be very many. But once they start to know the caregivers and trust them in the facility, we often see that improving. And avoiding justifications and excuses and instead really acknowledging the, the emotion and the difficulty associated with this transition. Um, because it's you're still a caregiver, but there's been a change in your care um, caregiving role. I once worked in, in a facility that had a special program they called the Family Liaison Program. It was kind of nice. For six months, you were kind of paired with someone who was uh, a clinical leader or administrative person that really helped to be a um, kind of a touch point for that um, family caregiver so that if they had issues and didn't know where to go or who to talk to, they could consult their liaison for appropriate direction. Talked a little bit about screening of family caregivers. Um for those who might need additional support and understanding this is not just social services job, although they're um, truly experts in it, but we can all do something to help. And then last, just acknowledging that 
family caregivers have known this person and all of uh, his or her intricacies. And so to listen to some of that information and use, use that information and integrate it into the resident's plan of care. Yeah, that that is a lot. And I think it's it's just critically important. And I, you know, n- nobody is going to take as good a care. Well, I shouldn't say nobody, but it's unusual for a nursing home staff to be able to provide the same kind of care. And like you said, the same knowledge of the person and their who they are and their idiosyncrasies and so on um, than a family member. But I, I think family members really appreciate reassurance that we're going to do the best we can. You know, we care about your mom. We care about the person she is. We want to hear from you what kind of person she is. And, uh, you know, we're going to walk this path with you. And I think that that can really go a long way. Um, so, so great work on this piece. Thank you for that. Uh, so, okay, next we're going to talk about Dr. Lisa Lind's behavioral health column, which appears on page 12 of the January-February issue. And this one's entitled, Keep Calm and Carry On, Managing Residents' Anxiety While Managing Our Own. And I think this is a great paradigm. It kind of reminds me of the advice in Samuel Shem's novel, The House of God, which probably many of our listeners have read back in the day. And that was, first, take your own pulse. And in the same way that we advise family caregivers, hey, if you don't take care of yourself, you will be of no use to your loved one. This translates also to our work as clinicians. And it's a stressful job that we have for many reasons. So I love how this article gives so many practical pointers on anxiety and even PTSD. And, you know, our nursing homes do PHQ-9s and, and BIMS testing on all residents. So, you know, the cognition and, and depression, but we don't have standardized required instruments for anxiety and PTSD. And this article does include some of those that our listeners can implement uh, if they want to uh, within their uh, facilities. Uh, so Beth, what else did you want to highlight for our listeners from this piece? So, uh, Carl, I think you brought a good point up in terms of the screening, um, particularly for anxiety, which is the most common mental health condition in the United States today. It's even more common than depression. Um, unfortunately, the the scales that are out there, one of the most commonly used one, the Generalized Anxiety Disorder Scale, the GAD-7, um, it you need to um, have, you know, you have to be able to answer questions appropriately. So it's not really appropriate for individuals with dementia. Um, right. And so we still struggle a bit with that. Um, and, you know, I, I think some type of behavioral measure to ad- address that would be helpful. The other point, I think Dr. Lynn did a wonderful job of describing, and I'm going to just use her exact words because I thought they were so crystal clear to avoid matching the patient's emotional intensity. <laughs> so um, anxiety tends to feed on itself. So if one person is anxious, those around that individual also tend to become more anxious. And so it's our job as best we can, knowing that we're human, to try to remain calm, offer reassuring phrases. She gives some examples of things to say, like, I'm here to help you. Let's go one step at a time. 
and use your feelings to guide you and how the patient is feeling. So if you're feeling anxious, it's probably because that patient is anxious as well. She also gave a lot of other um, great tips, such as for people with dementia, sometimes meaningful music, uh, adjusting the environmental press. So maybe that person needs a quieter environment engaging the individual in some deep breathing exercises. And then also, if this is something that's a, a, a regular um, concern or the patient has a history, considering a referral to a mental health provider in the facility. Yeah, that's a lot of great advice. And obviously, anxiety disorders uh, do respond reasonably well to medication. So that's always uh, something that we could consider either prescribing ourselves or uh, or getting a mental health consultation, as you say. So, uh, yeah, I hope our listeners will also be able to implement some of these recommendations uh, on what they read in this issue of caring. Uh, anxiety can really be a disabling problem and one that can have a profound negative impact on day-to-day -day life for our residents and for ourselves. Uh, so uh, lots of good practical uh, meat uh, uh, in this article. This episode will return after this special message. Join your professional community at PLTC 24. Embark on a memorable journey in San Antonio, Texas, where you'll have the opportunity to fully engage in a dynamic program offering valuable sessions, stimulating discussions, and numerous networking opportunities. While you're in San Antonio, immerse yourself in the city's rich heritage by exploring iconic sites like the Alamo and indulge your taste buds in the vibrant Tex-Mex culinary scene. Experience the enchanting Riverwalk where lively restaurants and shops line the scenic waterways. For those who can join us in San Antonio, we are offering a virtual learning track which will provide you with access to the live stream general sessions, nine live stream sessions, and all concurrent session recordings through March 31, 2024. Visit PILTC.org to learn more and register. And now back to our program. So we're going to wrap up today by talking with Dr. Winokur about his Meditations on Geriatric Medicine column, which is on page four of the January-February issue. And this is titled, The Last Patient of the Day. So Jerry, I first met you at an AMDA meeting, I'm going to guess like 15 years ago, where you were one of our keynote speakers. I think it was around the time you were taking care of your dad near the end of his life, and you you had your book uh, that had been recently published. And I'm so glad that you've become part of the AMDA family, and I just love your column. So before we talk about your article, uh, I want to thank you for stepping up into the associate editor position at Caring for the Ages, and I'm not sure what Beth and Tess had to do to twist your arm, but I'm just tickled that they did. Well, thanks, Carl. Uh, thanks for the nice words. It's really a a pleasure to be here with you and Beth today. You know, um, it's been close to 30 years that I certified for my CMD with AMDA for the first time. And, and being a part of our organization all these years has really been a highlight of my professional career. Uh, it's been an honor to, to have the small role that I've been asked to play, which is writing these columns for Caring for the Ages for the last 14 years, and, and now as an associate editor working alongside Beth and our managing editor, Tess Bird. So I, I really want to thank all of you for the opportunity. Uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to what's still to come. 
That's great. So uh, your article talks about narrative medicine, uh, which has gotten so much more attention these last few years, uh, I think, uh, thankfully so, and the importance of story in our work and beyond, uh, beyond our professional lives. So you use a reflection about a difficult patient you cared for years ago who brought out a lot of emotions in you. And I have to say, while reading it, I mean, Probably most of our listeners have cared for people like this, and uh, you know it does. It brings brings out emotions. We can't help but feel uh, sometimes resentful or angry or or uh, unappreciated and whatnot. So, and I'm going to recommend to all of our listeners if you haven't already read Jerry's piece this month, you really ought to. Uh, so, I think most of us have some expectations about how our patients should behave. You know how they should just appreciate what we do for them. Yeah, just ideas about basic common courtesy. But as we all know, those expectations are not always met. So, uh, Jerry, can you talk a little bit about what you want our readers and listeners to take away from both the story itself and what you gained from from recounting it? And, and then obviously it also, um, you know, it, it's therapeutic for you to get this kind of stuff out. And I think it's it's good for me as a reader uh, to read it, but how do you put all that together? Well, you know, you know, it took me a while, but one of the great lessons that I learned as I worked at our profession over the years is that the art of medicine is the honed ability to listen. And the practice of medicine, at least the day-to-day and year-in-year-out caregiving that most of us do, involves in large measure the interpretation of story. Words, not data, nuance, not numbers, were the commodities exchanged between my patients and me. I asked a few questions over and over. The answers came in an infinite variety. And by listening to our patient stories, Doctors and all of us who call ourselves professional caregivers glean and process most of the information we need in order to treat not only ailing bodies, but also to care for our fellow humans as unique beings. And really, isn't this the essence of what we now call patient-centered care? And sometimes, sometimes, as you mentioned, Carl, the challenging way in which a story unfolds teaches us truths about the human condition that may take months or years for us to fully appreciate. And I have often found that the more difficult the medical case, the patient, the family, or the interaction between all of these the more my need to reflect deeply about what the heck happened that has made me so uncomfortable. And that's the, that's the case with my caring for the ages story, the last patient of the day. And at the center of this story is a very difficult patient medically, but more so emotionally. And my attempt to remain empathic in my care of her, despite her abuse of nature. And yes, Carl rethinking this patient encounter from years ago and trying to write about it is therapeutic in some way that is still difficult for me to describe. But more important 
is that the process, the reflection, the writing, the thinking, that's taught me lessons that I may never have learned in any other way. That's a great way of looking at it. And and I think, you know, I sometimes uh, deal with very difficult and unappreciative patients. I have to say, when I had an office practice, I felt much less appreciated than I do now taking care of, of uh, long-term care residents. Uh, it, I actually feel somewhat more appreciated. But uh, you still have, uh, obviously, some of these situations where people are not only unappreciative, but they're overtly angry or they feel that you've done something wrong and that sort of thing. And I just, uh, to me, I remind myself, you know, I don't do this work because I want to be appreciated. That's kind of a bonus, right? Uh, oh, anyway, uh, Beth, uh, any comments or perspectives you'd like to share about Jerry's piece? Yes. Sorry for the pause there. Um, I was on mute. But I, I really, I always enjoy Jerry's pieces. <laughs> um, and this one was no exception. And I think it serves as really an excellent reminder that as clinicians, we're often working with our patients um, when they're really at their most vulnerable. And our patients are often lacking kind of internal sufficiency to deal with whatever they're faced with. And I think your story kind of highlights the humanness in all of us and the importance of tolerance, patience, and just the impact of um, what underlying trauma can do. Yes, definitely. That was a big part of this piece. Um, well, that's that's been wonderful. Uh, again, I really encourage our readers to to read Jerry's column and, and our whole issue. So, um, Jerry, since we have you on here, uh, you wrote a short collection of poetry a few years back called "Human Voices Wake Us," and I I uh, know we've published an excerpt or two in Caring for the Ages uh, over the years, but I absolutely love this work of yours. I, I mean, it resonates uh, so much with. Uh, a lot of my experiences. And uh, so uh, would you mind if I put you on the spot and asked you to share a short passage or poem with our listeners from, from this work? Of course. Um, sure. The, uh, the feelings and emotions, uh, these essentials that are associated with caregiving can sometimes be captured in a in a short form, like like a poem. And uh, I'm gonna read one now <clears throat> that, uh, that came to me following the transfer of one of my dearest patients to a hospice facility. Uh, and um, the title of the poem is Sherbert. A few weeks after her discharge, after the legions of modern miracles met her dauntless infirmity, I finally retreated. She waits now in this way station where I come no longer in white. And she is weary, a shadow, staring out the window, the tray of clotted food nearby. And I ask how she feels, but she does not answer. The raspberry sherbet is melting, yet it is, it is the only treatment 
a plastic spoon, my only instrument, and I bring it to her parched lips, and she eats for me. I say, isn't the sky so blue today, the clouds so white? Spring is near, I say, all the time feeding her, urging her to take every drop. But I am not used to this work, and a dollop drops on her gown and red spreads across her chest. I swipe it away with my hand. I'm sorry, I say. I'm so sorry. Wow. Well, thank you for that. Thanks. And I hope our readers uh, uh, appreciated that. Ah, okay, so uh, we're going to wrap up. <laughs> there was so much additional great content in this issue including AMDA President Dr. Milta Little's page one article reflecting on the society's accomplishments during her presidency so far, a more didactic piece about narrative medicine on page five, and the DEI column on implicit and explicit bias by Dr. Linda Kielman. For those with an interest in learning more about cannabis and its alkaloids, we have an article by Dr. Alexandria Hill. Uh, Dr. Gallick, before we close, do you have any final comments or wisdom to share on these or other articles from uh, this jam-packed issue? I, I just wanted to say that um, I, I think a lot of the columns, there's another column in addition to Jerry's on narrative medicine as well, a little more kind of how-to and what one group did in a facility, um, which was kind of fun. But I think we all just need to be a little gentle to ourselves. Um and to others as we go into this new year. That is a great, great piece of advice. And hopefully we can all uh, try to implement that uh, both in our work and uh, and elsewhere, everywhere. Here, here. So, yeah. So that's going to wrap it up for the January, February 2024 Carrying On The Go podcast. Under the leadership of Editor-in-Chief Dr. Elizabeth Gallick, Associate Editor Dr. Jerry Winokur, and Managing Editor Dr. Tess Bird, Caring for the Ages continues to report and highlight the outstanding work being done by AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, and its leaders, members, and communities. Please take a look at this jam-packed 20-page kickoff issue of 2024, available as always without a paywall at www.caringfortheages.com. And please recommend and share caring with your friends and colleagues. Meanwhile, thanks to our listeners for your support and for the wonderful work you do every day. And thanks again to Dr. Gallick and Dr. Winokur for spending your time with Carrying On The Go. And Jerry, I hope we can look forward to having you back from time to time. Oh, uh, thank you. It'd be a pleasure. All right. Well, now, until next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Carrying On The Go, wishing all our listeners a fabulous 2024 to come. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast. Mm -hmm.